0: Welcome to Travel Stories on the Mylonomics Podcast Network with your hosts, Trevor Mountcastle and Tom Kim. This week, we do a mishmash of random airline mileage run topics. So Tom, we don't really talk mileage runs now because you've got all the elite qualifying dollars and all those different pieces that we've got to kind of worry about that are exclusive from the actual miles and, and also the miles earned are often less than they used to be in the in what I'd call the heyday. What do you remember most about mileage running?
1: Well, you know, it was, it was almost a way of life. It was another weekend, another mileage run. You know, it was definitely, I do remember the old days where a mile flown was a mile that you would bank into your account and often also an elite qualifying mile. So, you know, butt in seat mile was... A mile for elite qualifying. And yeah, I think the age of the revenue-based mileage system pretty much killed mileage runs. But that being said, we can still talk about them and they definitely did occur. They were a fun time in, uh, in the history of the game.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was the time when, you know, we'd get literally on the plane just for the sake of flying and earning those miles. W- one mileage run, I think it was our first uh, mileage run that we planned together, was in American Airlines, transatlantic, sort of nested itinerary. So when we talk about a, a nested itinerary, what we did was is two different tickets. So the itinerary just briefly was a round trip from Philly to Dublin and then from Dublin to Honolulu. And Dublin to Honolulu ticket was essentially a nested itinerary within that round trip from Philly to Dublin, which got us you know, essentially repositioned.
1: Yep. I think if I remember, I think at least I booked an award ticket, I think, flying from Philly to Dublin on a direct flight. I obviously had a cash ticket from Dublin to Honolulu, and it was pretty inexpensive. I think it was all in business class. I'm thinking it was like in the $1,200 range or so, somewhere in that range. And there were a number of different bonuses happening around that time, which kind of made it a little rich. So I think we both kind of jumped on the opportunity, if I remember.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there was a transatlantic bonus and then there was a premium cabin bonus. I think from my perspective, for the entire itinerary, and we'll talk about the itinerary in just a second, I think I ended up getting almost all the way that I needed to get to then executive platinum. So we got something like 60 or 80,000 redeemable miles just from the bonuses plus the miles flown. And that itinerary, if I recall correctly, you and I did a little bit different. So you did... <laughs>
1: It wasn't planned that way. Yeah, I think it turned out that way. Well, actually, no, it
0: was planned that way, right? So I wanted to try to eke out an extra segment.
1: Oh, that's true. That's true.
0: So I had scheduled for myself. So we both did Philly, Dublin back. But you went and did Dublin right back to Philly. And I was going to go Dublin to London. I would have met you in Dallas. Then we'd hit Honolulu. And then I think it was back via Chicago. And then was it Chicago, Philly... Dublin then back to Philly?
1: Yes, it was. I guess what happened is the segment that we differed was you had a connection right in your Dublin to Philly and I had a nonstop.
0: Yeah, exactly. I had thought I'd get to the, the first class wing over in London and you know, get that extra segment and and have a longer flight getting over the Atlantic, so I'd get right into Dallas. It was a good idea at the time. As I recall, the flight out of Philly left late, like hours and hours late due to a mechanical which meant that we didn't get into Dublin until, what, 1 or 2 o'clock?
1: That's right. Yeah, we did have a couple hours delay on the way to Dublin. And then, of course, that did cascade into some other issues.
0: Yeah, so when we had gotten in, I was faced with either get on that same aircraft that you were flying, or there was no way I was going to get out of Europe that night. And given that this was literally like, I think we had... Two nights that were actually on the ground—one in Honolulu and one in uh, Dallas. This was a quick trip that that would have cascaded rather quickly.
1: You were definitely going to misconnect, and that probably uh, was going to cause you a, a major problem continuing, at least on the itinerary you had booked.
0: Yeah, so I think I remember us kind of strategizing as we were, you know, kind of realizing the situation that we were in. You were kind enough to actually join me. We both cleared customs and made a beeline for the ticket counter.
1: I think we were then told to go to the, actually the customer service desk, right? Because we actually probably needed to have a reissue of some tickets.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And there was like the lone person behind the desk because, you know, all the transatlantics, everybody should have checked in. It wasn't quite quite the squeaky wheel of the ticket cart going, you know, back behind the the wall, but it was very close to that.
1: I recall being a little bit worried for you. (laughs) Well, walking up to that uh, customer serv, that lone customer service agent, thinking, "Is this guy actually going to be able to do anything for you?"
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember that feeling as well. It was interesting because I think it ended up being what a good fifteen twenty five minutes, and and you were standing there with me, and then finally at one point you were like, "Dude, I got to get on my plane. I got to get past pre clearance because Dublin has pre clearance as well as security, so you could make the flight, and here I am." They're literally calling to the gate saying, hey, I need you to unblock this seat. And because we were in a business class, here I am, I'm like, crap, am I going to get downgraded to economy? How is this all going to work? Turns out that this guy is able to just get me in just in time. And they unblocked a crew rest seat, which on the A330, it was a former US Airways A330 that I guess you know, had the range to get all the way to Tel Aviv, Israel, but because it was just doing a shorter transatlantic, they pretty much were able to say, yeah, well, pilots don't need that crew rest seat. And so they were able to open that up for me. And then the races were on.
1: Yeah. I think I was, I stuck around long enough to hear them say that they could potentially open up the crew rest for you. Obviously that wasn't something that was happening immediately. They needed to get some permissions and such, but I think I realized that it looked good that you were coming. I did make a beeline for free clearance and, you know, Interestingly enough, speaking of mileage runs and and this topic that we're on today, this was probably the one and only time I've had an actual interaction with a customs official about what the hell I'm doing on a mileage run. Because, you know, this guy, you know, looked at my ticket. He looked at my passport and he was like, what are you doing? You just got off this plane. You're going back to Philly. What kind of crazy thing are you doing? And. I was more than happy to explain it to the U.S. pre-clearance customs agent. You know, hey, I'm earning some miles. You know, this was a really cheap business class ticket. I told him, you know, hey, it was about $1,200 and I'm going to earn a whole bunch of freaking flyer miles for this. So I just decided just take this flight. And he seemed to understand the, the logic behind it. Fortunately, I was able to be convincing enough that I wasn't doing anything nefarious. And I was like, oh, by the way, there's a guy right behind me who's doing the same thing. So hopefully, I greased the skids there for you as you were uh, running through uh, Dublin Airport. So they didn't
0: ask anything about that. By the time I got my boarding pass, I had Quad S. And this is the first time I got it. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, actually, I'm not even going to try to say it. I used to think, quad S was uh, selected for secondary security screening. I don't know if that's actually a fact. I just know you get four S's on your uh, boarding pass. You get to prepare for the TSA massage or whatever the Dublin equivalent is. So I get that and I'm running up to security. I'm negotiating with the people in security, in the security lines. I'm like, Hey, I'm really trying to make this flight. It's the last flight to the U S today. You know, really trying to make this. And people are so kind. I get through and I make it to the pre-clearance and I walk up and I'm like, hey, I got this quad S. I have no idea what the heck, you know, additional stuff you do. You tell me what to do and you got it because I want to make this plane. And the guys are like, dude, chill. They're like, okay, you know, take your shoes off, other fun stuff. And And for reference, this was 2015. So I think security is different now compared to how it was. I think it was a little bit easier back then. Compared to now where you've got like that additional screening for any flights going to the U.S., whether you're going out of, you know, De Gaulle or, uh, you know, Paris, London or Frankfurt or wherever, now you've got that additional level of screening. In 2015, I don't think you did.
1: It was Dublin Airport and not, you know, Heathrow.
0: That's true. That's true. So if it was Heathrow, I would have just gone to a hotel instead of trying to make that flight.
1: <laughs> there was no way you were going to do this at Heathrow. This probably only worked because it was Dublin.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So make it through pre clearance, make it down. Didn't even see if they had a lounge because everybody was already lined up to get on the plane. I think I ran into the gate agent who was on the radio and she's like, Oh, you made it. Hey, cool. (laughs) I think she was like, you know, skeptical that I was going to actually make it. So, you know, that was kind of a nice little end to that little interlude of a story, being able to make that flight. But somewhere in the course of either that run or the ensuing flight, I messed up my back. And by the end of that flight, I couldn't stand up straight. I think I remember chatting with you up in the forward galley because I was just in so much pain.
1: Mm -hmm. I do recall that conversation.
0: And that's when I kind of brainstormed, I mean, really, we brainstormed kind of options. And I remember learning about this particular caveat in the contract to carriage. I believe it was from Jean who uh, writes Le Chic Geek. I think she was the one that turned me on to this. Not, you know, when we were on the flight, but she had shared a similar experience where essentially the concept is, is a trip in vain. So most people get on a plane for a particular reason. In this case, I had kind of ginned up the reasoning was for a meeting in London on my layover. And so I called up American and I said, Hey, I was barely able to get back to the US. I wasn't able to get to London for my meeting. I would like you to cancel this trip as it is a trip in vain. And I was somehow able to get them to link both the Dublin itinerary and the Philly itinerary. And over the course of another few weeks, I was able to work with them to essentially give me the mileage credit. They had sort of offered either money or mileage credit. And so I said, well, I really do want to retain my status, even though I didn't get to go to Hawaii or London for that matter. So they were able to give me all the bonuses and all of that mileage credit that ended up being elite qualifying miles as well as redeemable, so while you were going to Honolulu and earning your miles, I was resting with uh, an ice pack on the couch.
1: You did it the easy way, and you know I, I would point out that you know specifically with trip in vain, you know when you usually you were only able to invoke this if there has been a you know what is an irregular operation right like so if you've had a delay or something that does in fact you know, significantly, or at least somewhat, impact your itinerary. You are, in fact, entitled to the miles that you would have originally flown on that itinerary. That is part of uh, this particular condition in the contract of carriage.
0: Exactly. It's something that I actually haven't used again. It's one of those things that I think is important for those of us, you know, in the community, anybody that's getting on a plane, to realize that there is that rule, you know, that trip in vain option.
1: It's pretty esoteric. I mean, it's interesting. You happen to be in these one of these weird situations where, you know, invoking that trip in vain actually made a quite a bit of sense. I'm trying to recall. I may have had one other time where I possibly could have done it, but it's a very, very infrequent situation where this would be to your advantage. I would say, dare I say, nowadays, you know, with mileage runs being kind of not even something that most people do, I'd say this is probably even rarer because it's really those mileage runs where it kind of made sense to invoke this because you know if you happen to have you know a mileage run where you were just flying for the miles anyway you know and they were just going to give you the miles and you probably even possibly get a refund too i mean why not right
0: the use cases are fairly minimal and maybe this is just that kind of esoteric you know trivia that helps you on trivia night or if you ever get on jeopardy but i still think it's an interesting story and i think it's a kind of a helpful thing to know in the outside chance that you end up in one of these, you know, hopefully it's a one in a million type thing because, you know, obviously you're getting on a plane for a particular reason. You want to be able to do what you're getting on the plane for. But with this particular promotion, it was just too attractive not to try that, especially given the fact I was going to be in a significant amount of pain for that entire trip.
1: You know, when you kind of made that fateful decision to not join me all the way to Hawaii, I was like, ah, I'm kind of upset a little bit about that, but I was like, you know what? I didn't think I was in a bad position because, you know, I did want to actually get all those miles. And I I was kind of questioning what you'd end up actually getting, not realizing that I think you made out much better than myself in terms of what your final earnings number was for this trip.
0: Yeah. So I think the way they gauged one of the promotions, premium and the first in business class was based on the distance of flight. And so I think that I might have gotten more miles because of that London to Dallas flight. But when I made that decision, I realized that I was putting a whole lot of faith in American. And I'm not sure that they deserve that much faith nowadays. But back then, it actually worked out. And I was a little bit surprised myself, given the amount of money that those tickets cost and the amount of planning that went into it, and the fact that we were doing this one in, in July. So there wasn't a ton of time for me to kind of make up for all that mileage, that, you know, with additional flying. If it didn't come through, It was a pretty big gamble.
1: I think that also speaks to some differences. I mean, back in 2015, you know, this is still mostly run by Americans' management, and it's probably before a lot of the U.S. Airways folks really found their way into the kind of the operations and the customer service of the the newly merged American and U.S. Airways airlines. And I do remember this kind of being part of the golden age of AA, you know, where I up until I think about 2014 had not even been an AA flyer almost at all. You know, I, I think I had a relatively bad AA experience during my first flight back in college. And I was like, on an MD-80 thinking, oh, wow, this thing is not really all that nice. And, you know, I, I'm not that big a fan of American. So I just never flew them for probably 15 years or so. And it was only after FTU and realizing, wait, hold on a second, there's some, some nice things about American. Some of their domestic flying actually was significantly, I think, better at the time than you know, what I was used to on Northwest and Delta, which was what were kind of my main airlines back in the day. I kind of made the switch. I was very happy during that period, you know. The system wide upgrades, the way you were treated as an executive platinum, the amount of upgrades you'd clear on these mileage runs, it was all very good.
0: I had switched to American, I think, when United went to the premier qualifying dollars. And so I think this was what, my second or third year as an executive platinum. And I agree with you. I I had a similar experience. My first job out of college, uh, out of grad school, they flew me out to I think Vegas. It was back to back MD80s in the back, right between the two engines. And I was like, I have no desire to do this again. The experience back in you know the twenty thirteen twenty fourteen range definitely was far superior than all those memories. And and soon it was not until you had just said your college experience that I sort of remembered why I had avoided American for as long as I had. So, Tom, do you want to just share, since you know this is travel stories and not trip in vain stories, do you want to share the rest of that experience that I kind of missed out on getting back to the States and then onward to, to Honolulu and, and back to Dublin?
1: The most memorable thing, quite honestly, about that whole thing, one, I remember going to the Honolulu Costco, and I think you had asked about Hawaiian shirts. So I, I remember sending you some pictures of Hawaiian shirts if you wanted to buy any. And I did load up on some of, you know, the usual Hawaii Costco stuff. You know, I think some macadamia nut, Hershey's Kisses and, and some other things. But, you know, the actually the most interesting thing about this was I completely made a goof. This being an international trip, you know, at the time I was I thought I was being smart because I'd have I had this one wallet that had my passport and all my, you know, priority pass card and, you know, my my freaking flyer things. And and then I would have my, you know, my normal, you know, everyday wallet that had my. Uh, driver's license and you know all my other regular cards, my daily driver stuff. And of course, you know, itinerary ending up in Philly, and I don't live in Philly. I I live in, uh, in Fairfax on the Virginia side near D.C. Of course, I had booked a very, very, as per usual, a nice little national rent-a-car Emerald Isle reservation. And I walk up and I realize I was so smart with my international wallet that did not have a driver's license in it. <laughs> So how was I going to get rent a car and go home from this Philly trip? I remember that being the most memorable thing about actually the rest of the flights. I literally messed up. I did not have a way home. What I ended up doing just last minute was I got on the SEPTA and went downtown to Philly and I grabbed an Amtrak train. I was able to get, I think, not the Northeast regional, but actually one of the interesting other routes that run between Philly and actually Manassas, which is a little bit closer to Fairfax. And this one had a dining car on it, which I remember being kind of fun. So I was like, oh, I picked that one. And I actually remember having a nice little uh, sit-down dinner on Amtrak on the way home. Fortunately, got some of my relatives to pick me up from the Manassas Amtrak station.
0: Somehow that seems like a really fitting way to, to end a mileage run. You know, it's you've got planes, trains, and we took an automobile up. So it had the trifecta. Did you get any boats in?
1: Uh... I don't think I was on any boats in Hawaii. No, it was a very, sh- I mean, I think it was just an overnight in Hawaii, if I remember. Unfortunately, most of the equipment, you know, was kind of uninspiring Amer- American domestic uh, first class stuff. So nothing too significant there either.
0: As I recall, that flight that we had from Dallas to Honolulu was the old 767 with that, I think it was a 767 with the angled lay flat seat. That's right. I mean, I think those DFW to Hawaii flights, because they, they fly a wide body to Maui as well. I think those were like the last seats to get upgraded in the entire fleet. Maybe Lima was further behind, but it felt like they took forever to upgrade those.
1: Well, it's funny that they did upgrade. them. I mean, they didn't really last that long because, you know, they, they upgraded them to those, I think, Thompson Vantage seats. They only kind of stuck around for a little while. Like, I think they knew they were going to retire them soon because they didn't actually even put an in-flight entertainment in business, if you remember. They just had uh, iPads.
0: Well, my recollection was was because that that particular aircraft style. Just couldn't support the full electric needed for the full IFE.
1: Well, for whatever reason, you know, I just remember it being like these don't seem like they're going to last that
0: long. No, it's, uh, it's a fair point. I did fly that particular product on a different mileage run from Milan to to Miami at, at some point. I didn't mind it though. I actually felt like, other than the fact that they take everything from you, like you know, an hour before you land, anytime they had announcements, it didn't interrupt my tablet watching. <laughs> It was almost, you know, there were some nice things about that. You know, American with taking, you know, the headphones and the uh, tablet. Uh, you haven't even started Descent, but the tablet's gone. The headphones are gone.
1: I do remember they did do some of the, the traditional American ice cream sundae cart, which that is something that I do miss. I don't think I've been on an American flight recently where they've had that, although I hear maybe it's coming back.
0: Yeah, I miss that as well. And United used to have that as well. I can't remember if they had an ice cream sundae the last time I was on a plane because they took that away during the pandemic and I think they took a while to bring it back.
1: I dare say that is the one thing that redeemable quality of premium class on American Airlines and a couple of other uh, US-based carriers, they they know how to do an ice cream sundae cart.
0: That they do, that they do. And once upon a time, domestic first, those warm chocolate chip cookies, I remember them so fondly and then they started changing around the recipe. And it just, why break a good thing? Because, you know, you need avocados in it or something. I feel like that's what airlines are doing now. Uh, There was an interesting tweet thread on Twitter from Ed Pizzarello, who does uh, miles to go and pizza in motion, sort of, you know, showing a menu on a United flight saying, no, no, no. You know, it was like that. There was like some, you know, sous vide eggs and there was some other frou-frou stuff. And I was just like, you know what? Just figure out what you can make on a plane easily and, and go with it. Oatmeal, yeah, that
1: works. It's safe. We don't need avocado toast. I don't know. I, I, I am probably impressed though. Sometimes, like I know, in Alaska Airlines, you know, they sometimes have these. I think maybe the sous vide eggs, but you know, they have the shashuka kind of, of breakfast. And the fact that they can do a poached egg or an egg that's not completely solid, it's. I just find that as voodoo magic for catering on an on an airplane. Whenever you, you get an egg that has like a runny yolk.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I can agree with you. And Alaska is probably the outlier there because I think they actually do a really, really good job with their meals and they do do some of that kind of, you know, risky stuff. The challenge I run into is, is, you know, risky stuff that sh- the, the shashuka and stuff, that's all interesting. If you can execute it flawlessly, you know, hundred percent of the time or a very high percentage. And I've had enough of these things and I, I'm sure many others have where, they're not even in the 90% range. Maybe Alaska is. And I think you've done a lot of Alaska flying and mileage running, you know, kind of bringing us back to that topic.
1: I mean, it, I think it helps that Alaska is like 90% 737s. So it probably helps that they don't have a lot of variation in their equipment types and ovens and, and catering. I mean, it's it's all very unified and American or United or even Delta. I mean, how many different kinds of planes, even internationally, are crew having to familiarize themselves with, you know?
0: It's so true. It's so true. I mean, y- you know, there's something to be said about the simplicity of the fleet. So, Tom, we've talked about the uh, Dublin-Honolulu kind of fun trip that, that that we did together, mostly or somewhat together. What about one that you've done on your own?
1: I can think of one in particular that's kind of a weird line. That is the Mexico to Easter Island route, which is Mexico City uh, via Santiago to... Ilza de Pascua, which is Easter Island, which is a, a remote island off the coast of Chile in the Pacific Ocean. Very remote, five or six hours uh, from uh, Santiago. A wonderful place to visit because, you know, it's the, all those Easter Island rock heads are. And, I mean, just Google them on and you'll see what I'm talking about. You know, the statues that are on Easter Island. They're very distinctive And a very interesting part of the culture and the history there.
0: I missed out on those. I mean, I saw so many of them and I think you've done like what, three or four of those. I was so sorry to miss out on, on them because we haven't seen them come back. How was that experience? I mean, you know, you had a couple of short flights, right? Like what, they're both what, five or five or seven hours.
1: And sometimes I would connect depending on the fare and what the availability was. Sometimes you'd have a a connection in Lima as well. I did it once originally actually to go to Easter Island. It wasn't really a mileage one. I actually did stay on the island, and I went with a good friend of mine. We were there for nearly a week, and it was my first time on Easter Island, and we did go and visit um, a number of the different national parks there and and had a wonderful trip. I do suggest it. The only downside is there's not a lot of options for uh, points and miles hotels there but definitely worth a visit and that and that one was kind of its own little it was actually my first trip I think to Latin America believe it or not I, that was my first time to Santiago first time to Lima I went to Machu Picchu I you know, went to Cusco went to the Sacred Valley did uh, Tambo de Linca. had a wonderful time and, and saw a lot and did a lot a year or two later you know the same fare that we saw you know that kind of you know just around $1000 fare for business class on Latam or actually LAN at the time I think this was before the merger actually
0: Oh, it was Um, well before, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it was very, very, you know, tempting because, you know, that's a fair amount of mileage. They were a one-world partner at the time. Again, it was helping me with my executive platinum uh, mileage requirements for the year. And the best way to do them was to do them nested. So I think I did potentially, I think I, if I remember correctly, uh, I I landed on, on Easter Island twice. You know, I did one- Mexico to Easter Island round trip, and then i I did another one immediately after, so <laughs> did two back to back round trips from Mexico City because obviously you know t- there's some cost to positioning down to Mexico City, and I did think it was kind of ridiculous that I flew down I was both of these were immediate turns. I was on Easter Island for I think about two hours. I walk you know I walk out of the airport and I walk back in that's it. <laughs> had a sandwich at the restaurant in the airport, very tiny. And then uh, that's all I did on that trip. That one was notable for another reason, though. On my way back, this happened to coincide with one of the earthquakes in Mexico City. So I was in between my uh, positioning flight back to the U.S. I was staying at the courtyard by Marriott that's right there at Mexico International Airport. And I'm sitting in my room watching TV, and I I suddenly see this drawer uh, in the dresser just kind of come out a little bit. I'm like, that's odd. push it back in. Comes back out again. And then at that point, I'm like, is there like a ghost in here? Like, what is going on? And then, I, then, then the whole room starts shaking. And I'm like, oh, this is an earthquake.
0: Well, <laughs> oh, this isn't Casper. This is just an earthquake.
1: <laughs> I run outside. It's, strangely enough, I mean, all the local people there were like, it's only Category 5. Ugh. I'm running out the emergency exit. I'm in, in the alleyway of the courtyard by Marion and these other employees that are kind of milling around. And they're like <laughs> – <laughs> you know, a couple of minutes later, I just go back in and it, everything's fine. And there wasn't any, I think, again, it was not one of the major earthquakes, although unfortunately there was a larger earthquake that did hit Mexico city about a month later. That again was the most memorable thing about that particular mileage run other than, yeah, Easter Island is kind of a weird place to do a mileage run to.
0: Yeah. And pretty cool place to be able to say that you've been to. And that's a domestic (laughs) flight from Santiago, right?
1: It is. It's another weird one. Yeah. You know, five or six hour transoceanic domestic flight. Yes.
0: That's an interesting one. What kind of aircraft was that? I'm more than just curious.
1: It was mostly 767s. I'm trying to remember if one of the the legs might have been a 787, but I think that for the by and large, you know, of the six or seven segments that I've done, they've been on uh, 767s.
0: I mean, that's better than a narrow body or a regional.
1: Considering that the, the wide body is the main commercial link that you have it's kind of interesting for such a remote and relatively sparsely populated uh, location
0: i can totally see that i mean it's it it is interesting that they'd be flying a wide body there i can't imagine that they'd be filling it every every day every flight would they
1: i think they managed to and well (laughs) i guess if you're selling thousand dollar business class (laughs) tickets yeah
0: i suppose that would be a way to do it
1: (laughs) there's such a thing as induced i guess demand you know you you make it cheap enough and people want to go
0: So true. So true. So do we want to stay in uh, South America or do we want to pivot elsewhere?
1: I leave it to you, my friend.
0: So since we're talking South America, fun one that I had was Brazil. So in the uh, year leading up to the Olympics, trying to think, was that 2016, 2016 Olympics? Whenever the summer Olympics were in Brazil, there were some incredible deals. And even before that, Brazil was an interesting place because they don't allow fuel surcharges. I actually just pulled this up last week. If you look at matrix or at ITA matrix and you find a flight, you can actually look and see how the fare is made up in the old days, airlines would you know have one dollar fares or one cent fares and they'd have a whole lot of fuel surcharges and other taxes and fees. Now you look at the fare bases and you know they're pretty decent on that base fare but the reason is Brazil just didn't allow fuel surcharges so in uh, the year leading up to the Olympics, we ended up doing a repositioning flight. I think it was like $900 down in economy, which was a little bit much for us back then. We were able to clear all our upgrades and everything. Might've been 600 flight down per person, clear our upgrades. And then we just kept buying round trip business class fares out of Brazil, either out of Rio or out of Sao Paulo. We did a number of these turns, right? So we'd go down there for you know a long weekend. We'd, we'd go to Rio for Land on a Saturday, fly home on a Monday, that sort of thing. One time, we had a little bit of a limited time for the back and forth. And so we had to fly up to JFK. We flew down and flagship first, used another upgrade to fly that flagship first on the 777-300ER into Sao Paulo. So we get into Sao Paulo. Before we get into Sao Paulo, rather, I had asked them. They had a beautiful steak for dinner. I asked the uh, flight attendant to hold our entrees, and we wanted to have them, you know, kind of a steak and eggs thing just before we uh, we landed. And as we're getting off, and we literally only brought one backpack for the two of us. He's sort of asking what we're doing, and I'm like, oh, we're hopping a. Tam flight over to Rio. And then uh, we've got a a flight out, an American out at 8 PM tonight or 9 PM tonight. And he just sort of chuckles and he's like, no wonder you wanted your protein in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) So so we land at Rio's airport and this is a gig, the international one versus SDU, which would have been the better one for us to, to have flown into. We hop a taxi over to Sugarloaf and take the cable cars up. Our listeners hopefully have seen the Bond movies. There is a Bond movie where Gosh, I think it was Roger Moore and uh John. Moonraker?
1: Was it Moonraker? I think it might have been Moonraker.
0: I just remember Jaws on that cable car, the metal teeth. It, it was fun to, to get up there. So it's a two-part cable car. We only went to the first level. My wife is a little bit of a fear of heights, so I didn't push it going up even further. We ended up seeing Sugarloaf, came back down, had a churro, hopped in the, the taxi and back to the airport <laughs> to fly home. It was certainly a, a fun experience. And, and ironically enough, that flight home, they did an aircraft swap. And so they put us in first class. They just didn't provision it for all the first class amenities because it was one of those old triple sevens that hadn't gotten that new kind of, I think that's when they were rolling out that seat that kind of has the,
1: the, the front back. Yeah. I think the super diamond seat. I thought that's what they put on. No, the
0: no they so some of them have that custom made seat that like, if you move and the, and the person that's like, y- you know, connected to you, they feel it and stuff. It's, it's that custom made kind of like, it's a bunch of triangle sort of angles. If I recall correctly, like, like you could be sitting in one seat looking backward on the window sort of side of the aisle. And you're like literally staring right at somebody on the middle part of the aisle looking forward. It's just one of the most awkward seat designs, and apparently they're still alive and well because a friend texted me that he was on one two days ago.
1: I don't think I've been on a 300 that's been reconfigured.
0: The real flight back to the States was not a 300. I think it was a 200, so it had that that odd seat. It was either a 200 or a 767. I, I can't remember. I just remember it had that custom-made seat that, like, it delayed so many aircraft deliveries when they first rolled it out, and it's just a horrible seat. I thought they set that aside and, and just went to the what the Super Diamond seat, right? Is it the super diamond seat? Because they've got like two different reverse herringbone seats now.
1: They do. I mean, I think a lot of the converted ones. It was. I think the super diamond is on, and then the ones that uh, the three hundreds that started off with flagship first in the kind of the same seats they have on cafe. Those reverse herringbone seats. I think those also continue on for right now. I don't think they're planning on ripping those out just yet.
0: Yeah, I think so. Of course, you know, here we are geeking out on airline seats <laughs> for uh, <laughs> for a few minutes. <laughs> Do you want to pivot to another kind of fun mileage run from the days of old?
1: Sure. I mean, some of them aren't that old. (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, you know, there is still some mileage running to be had, you know. So, you know, Alaska Airlines obviously is one of the last airlines that still does mileage qualification through, but in seat miles rather than just on the revenue side. So I know as a result, I definitely made use of a number of different Alaska State mileage runs, you know, from here in in D.C. I'd fly up to, like, Sitka, Juneau, Anchorage. I think I flew to Ketchikan. I did a milk run once, which is another interesting, fun uh, route, which involves, uh, you know, flight from Seattle-Anchorage with several different stops. You know, the Anchorage runs are, are pretty fun. Of course, they're all on, for the most part, 737s, and not a particularly fun seat. You know, the actual hard product is pretty lackluster. On the flip side, you know, Alaska crews are great. You know, they're really friendly and have a great attitude. The catering on Alaska is is pretty decent as far as, you know, U.S.-based carriers go. They have interesting things. I didn't get too tired of the food that they served. They have interesting stuff on those planes, generally, from a catering perspective that you will usually enjoy eating. I've done Alaska mileage runs, though, not only on Alaska, but I think some of my early ones were on Northwest and Delta. You know, those are fun memories as well. Also on American, I remember flying uh, Dallas, Fort Worth to Anchorage, is one of the longer domestic flights you can, again, for mileage run purposes. And the fun thing is, you do one of these Alaska, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth to uh, Anchorage mileage runs at the end of the mileage year, sometime in December or so. Not only is it really cold outside, but you run into a lot of other American exec platinums doing the same thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> There you go.
0: It's a little reunion there in December in uh, Anchorage or Gino.
1: It totally is. It's it's just fun running into like minded people who obviously care as much about elite status as you do. Although I'm probably talking about something that doesn't exist anymore 'cause you know, people who really care about their exact platinum status are probably you know using their credit cards now to get miles, not butt and seed miles. You'd be probably doing it the hard way. Uh, and the more expensive way. Doing it, but in seat these days,
0: yeah. But you still have the Alaskan members that still want to be able to to do their status, right? MVP seventy five or
1: MVP seventy five or what. Is there an MVP one hundred now? There is a one hundred k now. Yep, it's a pretty good status to attain, you know. And in fact, I didn't requalify last. Year. I may try to do it again this year, but you know, I am kind of waiting it out. You know, probably the one thing that I don't know if people are. I definitely don't hear it mentioned frequently, but you know, the, one of the advantages of getting MVP seventy five is. You know, they do give you 50,000 miles once you hit that requalification level. That is kind of a nice bonus.
0: Yeah. I don't know anybody that'll turn down 50K.
1: Definitely factor that into your spreadsheets and your math as you're figuring out your cents per mile on your mileage runs. And realistically, I think the Alaska routes are probably one of the last ones that, you know, again, mileage run can, so on the fringes, make some sense when you layer that in with, you know, all the different partners they have and, and tell you, you know, pretty much any Premium business class type of revenue ticket I have has has been credited in recent memory to Alaska. That's really helped me with my stockpile of Alaska miles. You know, all those cafe mistake fares. You know, some of these, the Epic Guys trip. You know, all these ended up in my uh, Alaska MVP account.
0: Yeah, I remember that Epic Guys trip from episode eight. That got me MVP seventy five for the first time. Yep, I think I requalified once, maybe twice. I'm trying to remember. I was sad to see that go, though. But my problem is, is I mean, how could you spend any more, any possibly more time on a seven thirty seven? Other than you know what, if you could fly from maybe Miami to Alaska via like L.A., I, I mean, that might get you a little bit more time in a seven thirty seven and still fly domestic.
1: Well, how about Miami straight to Seattle?
0: For some reason, I figured that that Miami to L.A. and then L.A. up to Anchorage or L.A. to Seattle then Anchorage would get you a little bit longer because you're kind of going through. 3 out of the four corners of the country. But maybe maybe the flight to Hawaii is comparable. I I can't remember how how long that flight to Anchorage is. Is it like 3 4 hours from Seattle?
1: Uh it's about 4 or 5 I think actually if I'm not mistaken. Okay, like three, yeah. So three, I think I mean, 3 is a little is a little short. I think it might be 3 up to like Juneau which is a little bit closer. Anchorage is a little further.
0: So effectively you can stay on a 737 either go to Paradise or the Arctic uh, tundra in a 737 for almost similar uh, durations on a narrow body.
1: You know, they even have the, uh, you know, the Anchorage to Honolulu, you know, flights as well. That's another interesting line. I've never done it myself, but.
0: I feel like that's a really popular one, though. I feel like I've looked at that airfare and have been, like, surprised.
1: I think my, one of the things that's really driving me away from Alaska, though, is just their airfare have been very uncompetitive, and I think they're definitely filling up those 737s without having to be super uh, competitive on price. So, a lot of these kind of, you know, three $400, you know, mileage-run worthy Alaska round-trip fares and economy. I'm not seeing them as much, although I'm, I'm not really seeking them out either.
0: Yeah. I mean, the old day, you used to fly to Las Vegas via Portland or, or Seattle. And I think now you're flying nonstop or direct, right?
1: That's right. Well, you know, and at those prices, you know, when it was under $300, you could stick a connection in there and I have no problem whatsoever. I would enjoy it even if I didn't get upgraded. But you know, if the five, six, $700 price point, it's hard to do mileage running.
0: Yeah. And I think we talk about that all, almost every week is, is you, you <laughs> know, prices right now are not terribly, they're just not attractive. I mean, y- y- you know, we are, I'm, I'm looking at trying to get out to Reno and, and we'll talk about that the next episode. And uh, just the airfares are just crazy. I'm like, we say it among ourselves and, and others, you know, this is when you use your miles. But in my head, I've just got this mental bridge that I've got to jump over or this mental chasm, I'll say, to actually use miles for a domestic flight. And we're not just talking about like, you know, 12 or or 16,000 miles. We're talking about like 20 or 30,000 miles each way because even the mileage cost is pretty high.
1: I have that same mental gulf, you know, to go over in order to be able to spend 30 or 40,000 miles on a one-way domestic flight in economy. (laughs) That's really tough.
0: It'll continue to happen, I'm sure. But we just have to keep being, you know, a little bit more innovative here and there. Even you talk with the, you know, Southwest, we have the Companion Pass. The Companion Pass barely makes it palatable. And, and it makes it palatable because we're getting literally three people traveling for the cost of one.
1: I was just going to say, you know, definitely the golden age of mileage runs seems to be behind us. But so, you know, people keep your eyes out. You know, there's still those interesting examples that are all kind of on the fringe and I would say where the action is these days is buying, you know, revenue tickets in business classes where, you know, the cents per miles is a little bit more advantageous. I mean, you can still find some pretty, I think, uh, what do you call it? Uh, reasonable fares in the, in the one to $2,000 range in business class that will actually end up earning a pretty good stack of redeemable miles, basically rebating you for that flight. Now, mind you, it's probably never going to be the situation where you're going to get more miles back than the value of that ticket. But you know what? It's still probably a pretty high percentage you can get back, especially with some of the fare multipliers with certain classes of service.
0: Yeah. I think now for us, we're much more vacation run focused. If we're going to do something and pay for it, we're generally looking to spend a night or a couple of nights. We did that sort of as a partial. Uh, We did Cairo, a couple of Cairo fares. Good number of them, in fact, back when you could get them for like $1,100 on Qatar. So we'd fly Cairo, Doha, back to the US, credit all that to American. That's how you kind of circumvented the the elite qualifying dollar requirement in the first few years of their move to you know that revenue requirement. I've been monitoring that and Cairo is usually a good fares. You usually see either Qatar or Turkish Or British Airways. Lately it's been Turkish or British Airways because everything cutter is just far too expensive. I don't know what happened, but ever since the the World Cup, it's been atrocious in my opinion. But probably about three months ago, I was seeing twelve hundred dollar fares on British Airways, Cairo, via London to the Washington, DC area, either Dulles or even BWI or Philly. And, you know, then I saw probably about two months ago it went up to fifteen hundred dollars. Last time I looked, it's two thousand dollars. And if you do like one of those matrix or ITA matrix uh, searches, you can literally see it's two thousand dollars for like almost the entire schedule, which is great because you know if it ever goes back down, it'd be great to have that much flexibility. But like when it was twelve hundred, it was twelve hundred almost every day.
1: You know, British Airways is definitely one of those partners with some really good earn rates for premium cabins on Alaska Airlines. Mind you, you have to fly British Airways <laughs> and enjoy their business class, which you know can actually be pretty decent, although. They still have a ton of of aircraft with the yin-yang style of business class seat, which is, you know, traveling solo could be a little awkward where you're having to face a stranger for uh, takeoff and landing.
0: Yeah, or you get the honeymooners seat in the middle with Jack from accounting. And, of course, you get the wonderful British service with that occasional surly attitude.
1: Well, sometimes you get English high tea as well. So, clotted cream and scones isn't horrible at 40,000 feet or whatever we're at.
0: And back when I was an executive platinum, I got more operational upgrades on British Airways than on any other airline. I was surprised. At, I think I had like four or five operational upgrades, and I didn't fly British Airways terribly often. And from, it was from
1: like econ to first, or, or no, first? so
0: so it was usually from premium economy into oh, okay. business class. Yeah, got it. Yeah, that was pretty pretty regular thing for me.
1: I think that might be an idea for next episode or a new episode. Uh, we'll have to talk about some of our more notable operational upgrades.
0: Absolutely. That does sound like a fun one.
1: Well, Trevor, I, I enjoyed uh, kind of running down memory lane and kind of letting our listeners know about some of our, our notable mileage runs from the past. Hopefully they learned something, you know, hope they heard or, or can take away from them trip in vain, which might be a very useful thing to have in the toolkit in the very, very specific situation where it might occur.
0: And nested itineraries too. It's another one that we kind of touched on that I don't know that everybody kind of thinks of.
1: So Trevor, do you want to close it out?
0: Yeah, I, I suppose we should. Well, that's the show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed listening.
1: Join the conversation. Become a Mylonalomics Patreon member and get access to even more in-depth miles and points travel content.
0: Until then, we hope your next story is a travel story.